If you have your Bibles, we're going to start. Um, we're going to start in Matthew 28, 19, where we started last week, and we're going to be looking at uh, Godology, what I call Godology 102. So last, this is Godology 101, uh, but but Godology 102 is the next phase of our study of who the God of the Bible is. Um, I've shared before that when I was in grad school and when I was in seminary, I worked at Starbucks. And when you work at Starbucks, you get to know what we call regulars. And maybe some of you have been a regular at a Starbucks. That is someone who regularly goes to the same Starbucks in the same time, you know, maybe every week, every day of the, you know, weekdays or whatever it may be. And these regulars, we would really start to build relationships with them. Um, we would really start to get to know them and start to befriend them and start to feel like we knew one another. And especially the Starbucks I worked at for a while had a drive-through and a cafe, and we got to know the cafe customers so much better than the drive-through customers. The drive-through customers we would recognize, but you never really felt like you knew them. And part of the reason for that was because you were speaking first through like a microphone, and then you just saw them through the window. And, and so there wasn't as much, you know, direct human interaction. But I actually think one of the biggest reasons why we didn't feel that sense of connection with the drive through customers is because when someone co comes into the cafe, and you all have all had this experience, you go to Starbucks, and you order a drink, and they ask you for your name, and they write your name on the cup. Well, we're trained, Starbucks baristas are supposed to do that with every customer, because when you know someone's name, not just, it doesn't just make it easier to identify whose drink it is, it forms a connection and a bond. And so Starbucks, when I was working there, they, they, they actually, it was mandatory to ask for someone's name in their drink because it made them feel more connected to you and more connected to the store. And then obviously for that purpose is so they'll come in and buy more coffee and spend more money. But um, sometimes even someone would come in and order just a regular coffee. And when you brew a regular coffee, you don't have to go and call out. You just go and you pour it. But we would still ask for their name so we could f get to know them. And I've noticed now if you go into Starbucks, when I worked there, they didn't have this. But now all the baristas have name tags because they want that connection to be mutual. Because when you know someone's name, um, you, you start to form a connection that is much deeper than if you just see just their face or kind of have a recognition of their presence. It's sort of like the baseline of getting to know someone is getting to know their name. When you introduce yourself to someone, you say, hello, hi, my name is Danny, or my name, and you say hello, and you get to know someone's name. And you, if someone you only talk to once or twice remembers your name, you find that, wow, they remembered my name. If someone you feel like should know you doesn't remember your name, that's super, you feel bad, or, you know, and we talk every week at church, you know, you see people every week, or maybe you see them every other week, or, you know, you see them, you kind of know who they are, but you have no idea what their name is, and it's so uncomfortable, and you're like, oh, man, what do I do, what do I do, and we say every week, well, just go ask them their name, because most likely, they don't know your name either, and you can get to become good friends, and just stop pretending, and say, hello, what's my name, what's your name, my name is and then share your name. This is the baseline of getting to know someone. Well, the same is true of getting to know God. To get to know God, we need to know God's name. Um, and so um, as, as we gather and we look at, at the text, I realize that um, 
different types of people come to church. And so some people, uh, you know, in, in this room may have different financial situations, may have more money or less money. There are different ethnic backgrounds, different cultures, different religious and life experiences. And, and sometimes someone, they may be in church, but maybe they don't even know if there is a God or they're not quite sure or they, they struggle with, how do I know if there's a God? Or they're, they're, they think, okay, there is a God, but how does that really affect my life? And so wherever sort of you are this morning in your own walk uh, of, of life and, and sort of assessing faith and learning uh, about the Bible and learning about God, I want to uh, ask you to, to, just, to just listen in and think through uh, three questions with me. So we're going to look at three questions, and, and these questions are this. Is there a God? We're going to talk about that briefly. Is there a God? Secondly, if there is a God, what is God's name? How do you get to know God? How do you get to know him? You get to know him first by getting to know his name. And then the third thing where the rubber meets the road is why should you care? Why should you care? So is there a God? Is there a God? Um, well, before we answer that question, let's pray and just ask God's help as we, as we just get into the, to the kind of the meat of the message. Lord, I just thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that because of Jesus, we have no one to impress. We have nothing to prove. We have nothing to lose. That we have freedom. We have peace. We have purpose. And we're going to see that as we move through the message, not to give away the ending. But Lord, I just ask that you would bear upon us that truth, that you would be with the kids as they're learning and growing, and you'd be with us as we're learning and growing. Edit me, and, and you know I've prepared notes and thought and prayed through this, and and uh, if, if there's something I need to say that, that I haven't even thought to say, that you would add that in by your spirit. And if there's something in my notes that just doesn't need to be there, that you would edit me out, that your spirit would have freedom to move in the hearts of your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So is there a God? Well, it's interesting. The Christian Bible never tries to prove that there's a God. It never even really addresses this question. Uh, it, instead, it gives you reasons why you should believe in this specific God. The Bible assumes that God is real. And the reason the Bible does that is because almost every person who has ever lived and every culture that has ever existed, God has been sort of a, the de facto setting of people's minds. People believe in God or gods or some sort of higher power or something. It's very, very rare for someone not to believe in God. Now, that happens, but even today, which may be the most prevalent time in human history of people who don't necessarily believe in God or have a religious orientation, statistics are somewhere between 3 and 7% worldwide of people who are atheists or who do not believe in God. And that's now the most scientifically advanced, technologically advanced, most secular age maybe in history, and only 5% of people or so would consider themselves atheists. So atheists, they're, they're, and some of them are sort of like intellectually, like they want to think they're really smart and elite. Other people are just honestly, they just can't get themselves to the place of believing in God wherever they may be. It is by far a minority position. And so if someone's an atheist, and, and maybe you're rest, talking, you know someone who's an atheist, um, be, be honest about you know, asking questions and, and engaging with them. But the most, most likely, 
Very few people do you, that you know are actual true atheists. And, and in any given group, the only, a very few peop, very few numbers of, of, and percentage-wise of those people are going to be atheists. Because the, the reality is most people today and most people in history have believed in a God of some kind. So the Bible, <clears throat> the Bible doesn't try to get you to believe in, in that there is a God. It assumes you believe there's a God. Now, if you don't believe in God um, or you know somebody who doesn't believe in God, there are good arguments for the belief in God, and I can point you to some resources if you're interested after, uh, come talk to me. But the Bible's not trying to prove that there is a God. It assumes we believe there's a God. The question is, what God do you believe in? Is the God you believe in the real God? Is the God you believe in a true and living God? That's the Bible's burden. The Bible's burden is to point you to the specific God who created the world and who redeemed the world through his son, Jesus Christ, and to show you who he is so that you can believe in the one true and living God, not just generically to believe in a God. And when you see the one true and living God, and when you get to know who God is in the story of the Bible and in the scripture, that becomes irresistible by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you cannot resist the reality of who God is once you really get to know him. And how do you get to know him? Well, first, you got to in get introduced to him by his name. What is God's name? That's our second question. What is God's name? This is really the bulk of the sermon, all right? So we're going to be in this section for a lot longer than we were in the first section or that will be in the third section. So don't freak out when it's starting to get times, you know, building up and it's like I'm still on the second point because we're going to just, just hang in, okay? What is God's name? Well, the name of God, first of all, in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word Yahweh. The King James and other translations sometimes translate it Jehovah. So, so one place we see this really clearly is in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, says, The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with Moses, him, is Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Now, when you see this in the Bible, O-R-D, all capitals, most English translations use that to translate the Hebrew name Yahweh or sometimes Jehovah. And this is it in Hebrew, just if you want to, it looks cool, you know. And actually, Hebrew, by the way, just it reads right to left. So it actually goes this way, yeah, Jehovah or Yahweh, like that. The Lord reveals himself to Moses, Yahweh. He says, the, and it says, it says he proclaimed his name. It says, hey, Moses, by the way, nice to meet you. My name is Yahweh. I am Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, and it's a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. We talked about this last week. But the word that, or the name or the title of God is not actually God's personal name. It's a title, like we would say the president and then their personal name, President Donald Trump. Is, is a title and a name. Well, the Lord God, his name is Yahweh, and his title is God. And there's lots of names and titles used to describe God because you can't just use one to describe who he is um, and all of his character. But here we see that his name revealed in creation and then revealed in redemption, revealed in him redeeming people from Egypt, his people who were slaves in Egypt. 
is Yahweh. Yahweh is the God who created the world and then called this man Abram out of idolatry and made him a great nation and then saved that nation from slavery under the powerful ancient nation of Egypt. And he's a God who is revealing himself as gracious and compassionate, loyal, forgiving, and just. So we see in the Old Testament, God reveals his name and introduces himself. His name is Yahweh. But here we see now in the New Testament and in the gospel, God reveals his name more fully and more specifically. God is not just God generically. He is a personal God named Yahweh. But Yahweh is not just named Yahweh. We see the name of Yahweh is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here we see the text in Matthew 28 that I want to, this is kind of the hinge verse here of the whole sermon. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, one name, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One name, but then three names. What, how does that work? There is one name, singular, one name, the name of God, the name of the one true and living God, the name of Yahweh is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does this mean? Well, it means that God is a trinity. That the name of God is a triune name. Tri, three, un, one. Three and one. That the one name of the one true and living God is three person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As the story develops, we see in the incarnation, in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, that Yahweh reveals himself even more fully and even more specifically. Yahweh is his name, but Yahweh's name most fully revealed is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just like you might, someone might know uh, me first as like pastor, or sometimes I teach classes, or professor. And then, and then they get to know me a little bit better. When they, when they first walk into the church or into a classroom, they don't know me from anyone. They just know that I have a title. My title is pastor, or my title is professor. Then they get to know me personally, and they know that I'm not just pastor, that I'm Pastor Danny. And they know me as a person. They have a title and a name. But then people who really, really know me, they don't call me pastor at home. Like Laura, she doesn't call me pastor at home. It's, it's, I tried to get her to. She just won't do it. She calls... She calls me lots of things that I won't repeat, but, but most, most nicely and most, she calls me Danny because that's my name. Sort of like that. You can know God as just God, impersonal and sort of abstract. You can know him in the Old Testament as Yahweh, more personal, more specific. But to truly know God, to truly know who God is, you have to know him by his true name, his most fully revealed name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see that in the gospel, God reveals himself fully as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you don't know him, you don't, as that, you don't know, you don't true. Someone who believes in God is not any better off than someone who doesn't believe in God if they're not believing in the right God. And you might know true things about God. You might know that he's loving and he's powerful. You might know that he's gracious and forgiving. You might know all sorts of things about God. You might believe he created the world. You might believe that he is good. You might believe lots of true things about God, but it doesn't matter for your life if you don't personally know him fully as he truly is. Someone can know true things about me, 
they can know I have brown hair. They can know I teach the Bible. For, you know, that's my calling and my job is to teach the Bible. They might know that I like the San Francisco Giants, and they, they might know true things about me, but that's different than truly having a personal and intimate relationship and knowing me. So what I want to invite you into right now is I want to invite you into knowing or getting reacquainted with the one true God whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let's get to know him together. God the Father, the name of God, God the Father. We know God is Father because He has a Son, Jesus Christ. I wasn't a son, or excuse me, I wasn't a father before I had a child. Well, God the Father is eternally the Father of the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. There was never a time when He was not a Father because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally. There was a time when I was not a father and then I became a father, but that's not true of God the Father. He eternally was God the Father of His eternal Son who became a man, Jesus Christ. And then because of that, because of that reality of God sending His one and only Son, we can become sons of God by adoption and call Him our Father as well. There's, there's, how do we know God is a Father? We know God is a Father because of Jesus coming to earth and calling Him Father. So, Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am also working. This is why the Jews began trying to kill, all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So to call God your father was not just saying, oh, God is nice to me or God likes me. To call God father was to say that somehow we are of the same status. That he is to say, I am the son of God. For Jesus to say that was to make himself equal with God. Look at this next verse. Um, yeah, next one. Yeah, next one. There we go. For just, Jesus says, for just as the father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the son to have life in himself. The, the father eternally Michael Reeves says in that little book, Delighting in the Trinity, which is on the back book table I referenced last week, I'll reference again, God is eternally giving life and love to His Son. There was never a time where the Father and the Son were not eternally in communion with the Holy Spirit, an eternal communion of love, Father giving life and love to His Son, eternally generating His Son, eternally begetting His Son. This is the nature of God, to be a father who gives life to his son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Next verse, God the Father. Jesus says, if I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say, he is God, our God, he is the one who glorifies me. So Jesus is saying to the Jews, the God you call God, I call Father. He is my father, my eternal father. I am his eternal son, and I am here in human flesh so that you, I can tell you about him because you know him, but you don't really know him. You know him, but you don't really know him. Look at this next verse in John uh, 17. The, this, is etern- this is Jesus the night before he was betrayed, and he's with his disciples, and he's praying, and his disciples overhear what he's praying, and then they, John writes it down years later, and he, Jesus says, he's praying to the Father, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Father, you are the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. To know the Father and to know the Son is to know God himself, one God, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I have glorified you, Jesus says, on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is saying, I had all the glory, I had all that God is because I am fully God with the Father, and I have had that forever. Now, Father, restore that to me as I have set it aside in a certain way, and it's been veiled even though I'm fully God on earth in some mysterious way. Now, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Then the final verse on this point, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, all things are from Him, and we exist for Him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, all things are through Him, and we exist through Him. Now, I'm going to show you these words in, in Greek, just if this is not your thing, like if this kind of glazes over, just hang in with me, because this is actually important. There is one God, the Greek word is theos, you see it in Greek and then in, you know, translated into English, and then one Lord, kurios, kurios. Okay, now, here's what's important. When the Jews translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, they used two words to talk about God. They used the word theos, which means God, and the word kurios, which means Lord. And that's actually why Lord is... Yahweh's translated Lord in the Old Testament. It's based on the old Greek translation. That's a whole other side issue. But here, here's, the, here's the point. Here's where, why it matters. What, what, what the New Testament does is it calls God the Father, Theos, God, and it calls God the Son, Kurios, or Lord. This is what's happening. Words that were applied only to the one true and living God in the Old Testament are applied to both the Father and the Son in the New Testament. So what that's saying is that God is one God, but He is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's get to know God the Son next. God the Son. How do we know God the Son is truly God? Well, look at what He says. He says, He got into the boat, so He stops the wind and the waves. You know, remember the story, right? It's the storm. And then he's asleep, and then they wake him up. They're like, we're, we're about to die. And he yells at the waves, be still, right? And they stop. And they got in the boat. The wind ceased. Oh, this is the story of Peter and, and Jesus in the boat. I, I mixed them up. Anyway, the point is, Jesus commands the creation, and it stops. Then those in the boat, now this is the, this is the point, the upshot here. The, those in the boat worshipped him. And said, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, lots of people worship lots of different things. But nobody worships something they don't think is God. Anything you worship is something you think is worthy of your most, highest, your best. So it's not weird that they would worship someone who does amazing things. People do that all the time. What is strange is Jesus doesn't stop them. In the New Testament, the apostles do amazing signs and wonders, and people try to bow down and worship them. And what do they say? No, 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 no. We're just, we're just people like you. Jesus doesn't do that. He just accepts their worship. So what does that mean? Jesus thought he was worthy of their worship, which means Jesus believed himself to be God because he was God. Look at this next verse in John 5. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. 
So if you want to give glory to God, you have to give glory, you have to give honor, you have to give praise, you have to give worship to both the Son and the Father. Look at John 8, 54. I, if I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. Now, we already saw the beginning of this passage. My glory is my Father, about whom you say, He is our God. He is the one who glorifies me. Now, look what he says. We already saw that first part. You do not know him. These are the Jews. These are the only, this is the only nation on earth who had the true knowledge of God. This is the only nation on earth who had received the Ten Commandments, who had received the word of Yahweh, who knew who the true and living God was. The only people on earth, he says, you don't know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying, I was there when Abraham was there. Now, why is this crazy? It's because this was 2,000 years later. Jesus was saying, I was there. I was there with Abraham. And the Jews said, you're not yet. And they, they're like, you're nuts. You're not yet 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. What's he doing there? He's going back to the burning bush where God tells Moses, I am who I am. He says, before Abraham was, I am. I am Yahweh in the flesh. I am God the Son in the flesh. A couple more verses from John 11. This is when Lazarus, and I won't mess this story up. I know what's happening here, okay? Uh, Lazarus, his friend, had died, and they send word to Jesus, his sisters do, and when Je- this, the beginning of the story says, when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God. Now look what he says, so that the Son of God may be glorified through that. So the glory of, the, of God and the glory of the Son of God are the same If you want to glorify God, you have to glorify the Son of God. Now, what Jesus does is he goes to the tomb. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He calls Lazarus out of the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walks out like in all his grave bandages after four days being dead. When all the Jews would have said his spirit had departed after three days, nobody thought this was just just astounding and miraculous. And then he says to his sister, Lazarus' sister, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory? of God. What's he saying? He's saying that in me, the glory of God is present because I am Yahweh. I am God the Son in human flesh. Um, we're going to go to uh, Philippians 2. We're gonna, we've already read that one. So, Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself By assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he become as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So so notice it says he was in the form of God. He was God himself. In the form of God doesn't mean like a pretend God or a fake God. It means he was God. But then it says he assumed or took on the form of a servant. What's that talking about? It's talking about when he became a man, when he became a little baby in Mary's womb, and he was 
born and he was growing and he was raised and he lived the human life because he was fully God but also fully man. He was the form of God and the form of a servant who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. All right, I think I have one more uh, verse on God the Son. Oh, I have a couple more, but we might have to skip some. Uh, go, uh, if you go to the next one, Jesus, he's talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Now, let's pause there for a second. Because people say, see, firstborn, it means he was created. He wasn't really God. He was a created being. Uh, if you've ever encountered someone who is part of the Jehovah's Witnesses, this is a verse they like to say. See, Jesus was born. He's firstborn of all creation. He's part of creation. Well, no, that's not what he's saying. It says firstborn of or over all creation. So what is the firstborn? The firstborn is the one with the rights of inheritance. The firstborn of a household is the one who owns the household. That is his father's heir. That's what it's saying. It's saying Jesus owns all creation. He's not part of creation. He owns creation. He's over creation for everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth, the visible, invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Of who could you say that, but of, any, of anyone but God himself? Let's go to the next one. It's the second part of this passage. He is the head of the body, the church. The one who is Lord of creation is Lord of the church. He's building his church. He's Lord of our church, of Cross United Church here in Lighthouse Point in 2019. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. That's why we're here. That's why we do what we do is so that Jesus will have first place in everything. He will have first place in the hearts of every person who enters this building. He will have first place in the hearts of so many who are lost and dying of their sin in Lighthouse Point and Pompano Beach and Deerfield Beach. He must have first place in everything because some people have more than they need or could ever want and they're still missing what God has designed them for. And other people are, are in poverty and in, in difficulty and in strained relationships and they're missing out on what God has designed them for. And we want to have Jesus to have first place in everything. Now look what it says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That everything that God is was in Jesus Christ. And then we have one more verse, but we're going to go ahead and skip to God the Spirit. God the Spirit. Now, look what he says. Jesus says this the night he was with his disciples before he was betrayed. He says, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. How do we know that God is a trinity? Because God the Father sent God the Son. And then God the Father sent God the Spirit. That because God the Father sent God the Son and God the Spirit, we know that what God has done in, our, in the world is what God is like in himself. That if he never had created the world, he would always and eternally have been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he sends the Son and then he sends the Spirit. Look at this next verse. How do we know the Holy Spirit is God? Well, this, before we, we're going to get there in just a second, but look at this one. Uh, the counselor, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. How can anything come from the Father who is not fully God? How can God beget anything or 
or give, give rise to anything that is not God. If the Spirit comes from the Father, He must be God along with the Son and the Father. Look at this verse in Acts 5. So um, the story here, Ananias and Sapphira, maybe some of you remember it. These folks, uh, there was this radical movement in the early church. People were selling property and just donating that money to like help others in the church who didn't have enough. And so there's this movement of generosity. And this guy, Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, they sell property and they bring part of the money to the church, which is fine. You're not obligated to give all of it to the church. You don't have to do that. But what was a problem is they acted like it was all of the money. And they pretended, they lied, and they brought part of the money and said, look, we're donating all this money. They, they kept part of the money for themselves so that they could you know, live off of it and be enriched by it, but then they wanted the credit of having given it all. And so they get confronted. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it sold, wasn't it at your disposal? He's saying, you didn't have to give it. But if you decided to give part of it, that's fine. Just give part of it, but don't lie about it. He says, why have you planned this in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. Now, he said he lied in, in the first part to the Holy Spirit. But then he said he lied to God. So to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. Why? Because God is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally and forever, past, present, and future. This is who God is. So now, now the third question, the third question, why should you care? Okay, so why should you care? Well, because you're like, okay, that's interesting, like the Trinity. I know that's like kind of like important. It's like something confusing and I heard something once about like the clover, the egg, or, you know, water boiling, and I heard all these little analogies and never really understood it, and I still feel like, okay, I still don't understand it, but I know it's important. Like, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Well, it's not just an abstract, difficult Christian doctrine that people like to like say, okay, I know it's important, but let's not talk about it because it's confusing. It is the very heart of our faith and our salvation. Because if God is not a trinity, we are still in our sin. We have no hope. We have no peace. We have no purpose. We have no freedom. We are in bondage. Only a triune God, only a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can set us free from our sin. Uh, now, nowadays, there's this psych, psych, psychological jargon. They talk about a, the father wound, a father wound, that people... Uh, it's been shown that people who have absent or abusive fathers um, are deeply, deeply impacted and traumatized by that. That to, to, to have a father who does not do what a father's supposed to do has massive consequences in the life of the children, whether it's absence or abuse or, or whatever. Um, it, it, psychologists have found that this traumatizes people dramatically. And maybe some of you have experienced that in some form through father's absence or, or even abuse. Maybe some of you have had a great father. Um, so much of a person's mental and, and, and emotional well-being later in life is tied to what kind of a father they had, if they had a father and what kind of a, 
father they had. And the reason for this, I mean, if, so you, look at, you look at people like driven people across history. You know, like, like Steve Jobs, who changed the world more than maybe anyone in modern history. He, he's the, the reason you have a computer at your house, if you have a computer, is because of Steve Jobs. Because he's the one who took all the nerd stuff from like, you know, punch card, all this stuff that nobody cared about but geeks, and he put it on a screen, and he made it so that every person in, in the world would want to have one. And then what he did is like, well, that's not good enough. I, wanted, I need to make it smaller. I need to put it in people's pockets. And so you have a smartphone, and every one of you have a smartphone with a touchscreen. You can't even get a phone without a touchscreen anymore. Why? Because Steve Jobs decided that that's what it should be when he invented the first iPhone back in 2005 and 6. And even Android phones. Android phones were going to be like Blackberries. They were going to have like a keyboard, manual input, not a touchscreen. And then they came out with the iPhone and Google was like, oh my gosh, we've got to compete with this. And so we got to do touchscreens. Okay, so Steve Jobs, and then just that's just the tip of the iceberg of stuff that this guy accomplished, unfortunately died you know, relatively young back in 2011. But if you look at his story, this was a man who was driven by the fact that his parents had given up him up for adoption when he was little. This was a man who was driven by the wounds of the fact that his father didn't want him. And that's just one story. There's stories all over the history of the world and modern day. People who are trying... People, sometimes you look at the stories of people who are the most driven, the most ambitious. It's often to try to impress a father who could never be pleased or maybe isn't even alive anymore because we're wired for a father's love. We're wired for a father's love. And why are we wired for the love of a father? We're wired for the love of a father because at the heart of reality, the most true thing in existence is father loving the son in the fellowship of the spirit. That at the heart of everything, there is nothing more real and more true than the father loving the son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That the Trinity is the only eternal thing that ever will be. And we long for a father's love. And some of us, some of us had great fathers. Some of us had okay fathers. Some of us had bad fathers, but the reality is the best father on earth is just a pale shadow of the greatness of our father who is in heaven. And only in the love of God the Father, through God the Son, in God the Holy Spirit, only through the love of the triune God can we experience what God has designed us for because he designed us for him. St. Augustine, great theologian back in 400s, said that God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find themselves in him. We're wired for the love of, of a father. And this is the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that God the Father sent God the Son and then God the Son became a human man, lived a sinless life which no one had ever done. He died a sinner's death that we deserved but he took. He was buried and then he was raised from the dead so that anyone who turns from their sin 
will not perish but have eternal life. But the only way we can do that, the only way we can turn from our sin is if God the Spirit comes into our hearts and changes us. God the Father sends God the Son, and God the Father and God the Son send God the Holy Spirit so that we can be saved and restored to the Father's love, that we can live, the way we say it around here sometimes, is life like God intended. So why should this matter? It should matter because sometimes, as the kids say, this is everything. This is everything. The only way for God to be loved, the only way for God to be good, is if God is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look what Jesus says. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus will never cast out anyone who approaches him in brokenhearted, repentant faith. Jesus says, because I've come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but I should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to, usually we just think of like, you can't be, get to God without Jesus, but he doesn't say that. He says, no one comes to the Father, but through me. When God the, the Father becomes your Father, because you are united to Christ by faith and you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ, when you are brought into relationship with God the Father, God and his eternal love for his eternal son is bestowed on you. When Jesus was baptized, you see the Trinity at work. It says God, or excuse me, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, God the Son, and as he's coming out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and there's the voice of God the Father from heaven saying, what's he say? This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And if we are brought into Christ through repentance and faith, that is God the Father's word to us as well. This is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. You know, it's popular now to use gender neutral stuff, right? Now it's like all stuff, all stuff, sorts of stuff. I'm not going to get into all of it. But sometimes people want to take the male pronouns and words out of the Bible because it, you know, it seems to exclude women. But the reality is that every Christian, male or female, has the rights of a son. In the ancient world, only the son had the rights of inheritance. So to be called a son of God is not an insult, but it means that both male and female are brought into full inheritance through God, the eternal son. And when this is true, when you are in Christ and the father's love is set upon you, you are free. You don't have anyone you're trying to impress your father loves you. He delights in you and you have nothing, no one, no one else's opinion matters. When God the Father sets his love on you and God the Son and the power of God the Holy Spirit, you can live your life in peace because your father approves of you. You don't have, any, you don't have anything to prove. You don't have anything to prove to anyone. When this is true, you live your life with purpose because you have, nothing, you, have, you have nothing to lose. All the Father's eternal riches are yours 
You are the heir of the eternal God, the Father, in God the Son, empowered by God the Spirit. The triune God is at work on your behalf. And so you have nothing to lose. Freedom, peace, purpose. These are just three ways to think through why does this matter? Because this is what it means for you to be united to Christ and experience the love of God the Father, to be brought into the eternal delight of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. I ask you, Lord, to just move in our hearts in such a way that we see your glory and your beauty in the face of Jesus Christ. So many verses I didn't even get to, like 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, eternally God, eternally delighting in your triune nature. And yet you've revealed yourself, you've sent your Son sent your spirit so that we can be brought into the delight that you've had in yourself forever. And all we have to do is receive it, to turn from our sin and believe it. So I pray we would, in Jesus' name.